Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and today we're going to talk to Robert Boschman about his recent memoir reflecting on the history of Saskatchewan, specifically that region that extends north and south of Prince Albert. Professor and Chair of the Department of English, Languages and Culture at Mount Royal University in Calgary, Alberta. With a specialization in environmental humanities, he decided to work on an intensely personal book, a free-floating experiment in autobiography, family memoir, and history. The result is White Coal City, a memoir of place and family, published by the University of Regina Press in 2021. Rob, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Greg. Uh, I'm very pleased to be here. Well, Rob, give us some of the background on this book. Why did you decide to write it in the first place? This book has been more or less a lifelong project, I think, in many ways. Because of uh, one incident, a central incident in the in the narrative that's personal to me, that took place when I was uh, nine years old at Christmas of 1970 uh, at my uh, paternal grandmother's house where we were having a family gathering. And, uh, and at that time, uh, my paternal grandfather, John Boschman, had been uh, deceased for two years. So he died in early December of 1968 at the age of 62 of a perforated ulcer that that wouldn't uh that wouldn't heal and uh and he eventually uh basically uh bled to death in the hospital so at at the family gathering uh you know I was a, a very young boy very curious and uh, all my cousins were there and and I was thinking about uh ghosts as kids often do when they're that age. And, uh, and I tentatively and somewhat sheepishly uh, asked my grandma, I can remember being in the kitchen and I, everybody was around and I said, when I, when I got a moment, I said, Grandma, uh, do, you, do you think that Grandpa is ever around here? And she very matter-of-factly uh, said, well, yeah, I feel Johnny here all the time. And uh, he's often present. And she went thereafter, went down to the pantry and brought up this, this wooden box, uh, and put it on the dining room table and opened it. And, and inside was all this stuff. And we children all gathered around and looked inside and, and she then, uh, informed us all. And I remember my dad standing in the kitchen and I was looking at him she informed us that uh, that there was another grandma before her who had been uh, killed in a hit-and-run accident in Toronto uh, and that she was my dad's biological mother. And I had no idea. And I, I remember instantly seeing my, dad, my father in a new way because one of the things in the box was a, was a picture of this woman uh, uh, at wedding photo with with my grandfather John, and it looked just like my dad. She looked just like my father, 
And I was, uh, I was, I was astonished. And then there was a picture of her in the coffin in a crowded parking lot with people milling all around this open coffin. And, and, and there she is lying there, a, you know, a very young woman and plainly uh, dead. And so that's where the, the germination of the book, I, I carried that story with me from that point on. Uh, and was always fascinated by it through my teen years and into my 20s. I had the box, and I still have the box today. And uh, and I knew that I, I uh, as I started going to university, uh, uh, taking an English degree at the University of Saskatchewan, and working night shifts uh, at the Royal University Hospital, I would read these love letters of theirs. There were 87 of them from the early 1930s, and they kept a journal together. And there were uh, newspaper accounts, and and this box was just a a, a rich archive of a very personal and very haunting history, and and I was I was attached, and uh, and and I knew at that point that at some time in 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 my future when I was older and more experienced, uh, that I would that I would do my very best to write a book about it. So that's that's the uh, the provenance of White Coal City. Well, the uh, the most interesting aspect of this is the way in which you weave your family history with a more general history of the communities in the area, the community that you were born in, the community that you grew up in, as well as much earlier history predates your birth in terms of. Uh, in indigenous uh, settler relations. And this is a history pro- podcast, and it's the reason that I was drawn to your book. You describe the north-central part of the province very well, from Saskatoon up to Prince Albert, uh, including the Mennonite communities in between, as well as the Métis and First Nation reserves in between. And I think that the singular feature of this area of Saskatchewan is the, uh, what I would call, problematic relationship between the Indigenous peoples uh, that lived here before European settlement uh, and the Indigenous people that continued to live here after European settlement and their relationship with those later settlers and their descendants. And this is a recurring theme in your book. But did you start the book with this in mind? Well, one of the things that happened to me as I, uh, as I worked on the core family story throughout the 90s and the aughts and into the teens of the 21st century, first off, I did a lot of interviews of people that were uh, still alive in the 1990s because I knew that they wouldn't be around, you know, for very much longer. So I, I made sure that I that I secured interviews with people who knew Margaret and knew John and were around then. But as the story uh, uh, grew in my mind and as I did more and more research, I realized that that I couldn't tell the story of of my family without including the context. That the context was um, was every bit as much a part of the story as as the thing that had happened in me, Robert Boschman. And so I conceived of a way of telling the story through 
first through uh, through the eyes of my own childhood, and uh, and tried to focus as much as possible on uh, uh, what it was like to be a white settler kid in Prince Albert uh, prior to adolescence. So for me, I was born in 1961. So I was looking at the years through the 60s and then to the midpoint of the 1970s, maybe around 1976, 77. And in terms of my own personal history, I don't really go beyond my childhood. I don't, I don't say much about my teen years. I just felt that that was another story because I wanted to, I wanted to try to, as honestly and frankly as I could, describe what it was like to be a child in a place like Prince Albert and, and record a kind of coming into consciousness uh, a realization of not only my family history, you know, through opening the box, but also through living where I lived in Prince Albert and and the people who were there and the history that was that I grew into and out of, which is a history of colonization, uh, incarceration, abduction, I would have to say. Uh, I grew up in the back of a laundromat that was open 24 hours, seven days a week. And two blocks to the west was the residential school called All Saints. And two blocks to the east was uh, the correctional center for men built in the aftermath of the Riel resistance of 1885. I grew into this landscape and, and I couldn't separate the landscape and the place from my own story. And so... Uh, I felt it was really crucial to try to find a way to tell all of it as much as I could without uh, without leaving anything out and without occluding anything really important, while also being true to my own personal experiences. Right, and I and I'm going to ask you uh, a question about the structure of the book, but before I do that, on this theme, this larger history of Indigenous settler relations really became part of uh, your own family history and your personal history when your father and mother adopted Crystal, who was really part of the 60s scoop. Uh, and that's a history which has been told in one of our previous podcast episodes. But tell us about the impact of her adoption in your family and why you use her adoption as a gateway to the history of Indigenous settler relations in this part of Canada? Well, I realized as I was drafting White Coal City, if I was going to be frank and transparent about my coming of age in a place like Prince Albert, I would have to include the story of, of adopting Crystal when I was 10 years old. So that took place in um, June of 1972, when uh, when she was just coming into her sixth month. And my parents, in the year prior, had informed us three kids, I was the oldest, that we were going to adopt and that we would not adopt uh, a white child. Uh, my mom was a nurse, and we had a lot of neighbors of Métis extraction. Uh, I was friends with the Métis kids. My best friend was Métis. And, and they fostered children as well. 
and some of the homes that my mom went into, uh, she saw a lot of overcrowding, foster, foster homes where First Nations uh, infants and children were really in overcrowded and it really, really bothered her. And so she, she felt, and my dad agreed that, uh, and they were in their thirties at the time, that uh, that that bringing one of those children into our into our family would be uh, a way that they could um, help a child develop. And and one of the things that they always said to us was that whoever this child is will help us more than we help her. I cl- clearly remember them saying that, and they said it they said it many times. And so when Crystal did come into our family, uh, we were all prepared emotionally and, and mentally for this to happen, and we welcomed her. And uh, and it was it was instant and unconditional love uh, uh, for all of us. And uh, one of the one of the promises my parents made uh, was that when the time came, and she asked them uh, about her family background that they would help her uh, in whatever way they could locate her her kinship network. And they kept that promise. When she was 19, uh, my my parents helped her reach out to the government, and the government informed uh, my sister that her birth mother was looking for her. And so it it worked out, and uh, and that reconnection was made. And, uh, and it, and it was a very powerful, it was a very powerful experience for all of us and continues to be. Well, no doubt Crystal will come up again, uh, later in this interview, but let me ask you about the structure of the book itself. Why did you choose to document your personal and place histories and what you call a stratigraphic manner rather than a traditional chronological format? Well, there are, there are a couple of reasons uh, that I chose to do it this way. And that is what I mean by this way is I took the story out of linear time. And I, and I felt that that was really important to do because uh, I think that linear time, uh, uh, while important, and, uh, and, and I certainly value uh, it as a narrative concept, I felt strongly that for this story, I needed to be able to be true to the way that I felt my memory works. Uh, memory doesn't follow narrative chronology. Uh, memories will often crowd in from different times, and they'll do it simultaneously. And so I wanted to find a way to create an overall narrative structure that had uh, a chronology that was a meta chronology, but that within that meta chronology were layers of time and memory uh, that would allow me to um, to be true to the way that memory appears to me, and also tell the story. And there's another important reason that I um, that I wanted to do it this way, and that is that part of my story is about the colonization of the of, of Western Canada and the province of Saskatchewan in particular which caused in the late 19th century um, probably the closest thing that uh, Canada can say it has as a civil war. Uh, And that is because of the Dominion survey and the way that land was uh, being strategically surveyed in order to 
uh, meet the needs of of incoming waves of of white Euro settlers, and basically strip away the land rights of First Nations and Métis people, which greatly angered them. Uh, and thus the, the real resistance took place. And so I thought it was really important to, to choose to tell the story in a way that didn't follow uh, Western colonial concepts of uh, historical forward-marching time. Because then, in a way, I felt I, I would just be colonizing another story myself. And instead, I wanted to, to see myself as not an authority storyteller uh, doing his, his uh, authorial thing, but as someone who is documenting and confessing his part in a very complex, multi-layered history of a place and of one particular family. Right, and your, your family was Mennonite. And can you describe the history of the Mennonites who immigrated to this part of central Saskatchewan in the context maybe of your own family's history? I come from four lines of, of Mennonites, uh, the Boschmans, the Friesens, the Peters, and the Funks. The Funks arrived in, in the middle of Saskatchewan uh, uh, via uh, the United States. They first emigrated to Kansas, and then some of them, some of them split off and, and uh, arrived in Canada in the early 20th century. The Boschmans, the Peters, and the Friesens have a different emigration story, and that, and that involves coming directly to Canada. The Boschmans arrived in Canada from... Uh, from the Black Sea area in the Ukraine, uh, and and in about 1878 arrived at, uh, in the Saint Lawrence Seaway, and then made their way to southern Manitoba, uh, and then from there, um, both Peters and Boschmans and Friesens uh, made their way again in another uh, journey to settle in in the middle of Saskatchewan. And and they came as uh, the 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 Mennonite diaspora is one of flight from violence, and and so I find it really fascinating that uh, that my story involves uh, a grandfather figure, John, who was really committed to to the Mennonite uh, uh, theology and ethos and history, uh, so much so that. Uh, that when he when he witnessed his his first wife Margaret's um, death by hit and run on a street in Saskatoon in June 1940, he he was never able to reconcile that catastrophic trauma with what he believed, which was uh, uh, in a sovereign divinity that uh, wills all things. Uh, and doesn't make mistakes. So one of the things I noticed as a young person reading his journals was he would repeatedly say, God doesn't make any mistakes, and so this must have happened for a reason. And the reason must be, it must be me, because God is perfect and I'm not, and therefore this must have all happened because of something wrong with me. And that that reasoning on his part brought him to two really unfortunate places. The first is that it, 
he was forced to internalize his own his own doubts and and his own trauma and and he turned to violence against his his sons as a result uh and and was very abusive towards them and secondly i think it killed him he died at the age of 62 in a family with great longevity and he died in a in a you know in uh, as a result of uh internal hemorrhaging from uh, from an ulcer that uh, that it just would not go away. Well, you and I both, uh, in a sense, grew up in Prince Albert. I only lived there in my last years of high school, and you lived there for both uh, your primary and high school years. And as you know, uh, Prince Albert is not Prince Albert to the people that live there. It's simply PA. And your description of PA is very apt. Uh, unpaved roads and lanes, the prevalence of alcohol, hockey, and violence, and a very uneasy relationship at best between the so-called majority and the very large uh, Métis and First Nation population in PA. In fact, an Indigenous friend of mine, originally from La Ronge, who but who later moved to Toronto and uh, subsequently lived in California. Uh, he spent his youth attending All Saints Indian Residential School in PA. And he told me that the city, from his perspective, was the most racist place on the face of the earth. Would you agree with him? Well, I would have to agree with him because he he obviously speaks from experience. And, uh, and the All Saints uh, residential school that you just referred to was was the school that was just a few blocks from the laundromat where I grew up. And, and so I, I the children, uh, some of the children from that, from All Saints would walk past uh, the King Coin Launderette uh, on their way to the very school I went to. And so we would walk to school together. And I, and I knew these kids by name, and I, and I remember their names and their faces to this day. But yeah, Prince Albert is a very, very tough place uh, for, for anyone to have grown up during that time. I haven't been there in a while. I can't comment on what it's like now. But from what I've heard, it is still a pretty tough place. And basically, we're looking at, we're talking about a city that... Uh, that is based on incarceration. It has uh, it has the jail that I mentioned uh, for for men. Uh, it also has a correctional uh, center for women, and it also has a federal penitentiary uh, on the western edge of this of of the city, uh, the PA Pen. Uh, and then it had All Saints and I believe another residential school plus a, a tuberculosis sanitarium uh, from the from the mid-20th century, and, uh, and then a pulp and paper mill. Uh, so this was not, uh, this was not a, a, a soft or kind-hearted or welcoming community to be a part of, and it didn't matter who you were. Um, but I would say that for people like your friend, I can't even really imagine what it must have been like. It, it was a devastating place for me to grow up, and I was a little white settler kid. So i i, I can only I can only try to m- imagine what uh, the experiences of First Nations and Métis people 
uh, have been like. Well, the title of your book, at least I think the title of your book, comes from the failed project that financially devastated PA for generations after, La Coal Falls Dam. Can you just quickly describe to our listeners the history of La Coal Hydroelectric Dam and its negative legacy for the city? Yeah, La Coal was always a part of my, uh, my growing up. Uh, I, I seem to have known about it from the beginning, and my and my dad and my uncle and others would take me out there from time to time. It's still there. It was built uh, at, at uh, in 1909. The construction began, so right at about the time the city was awarded the federal penitentiary, uh, there was also this other Lacole Falls Dam project that was going to be a hydroelectric dam, uh, and and the city f- uh, fathers. Uh, invested quite a lot of uh, uh, city equity in this project, and then the project ultimately failed, partly because of the onset of World War One, uh, the Great War, uh, and and left the city in a state of bankruptcy, if not close to bankruptcy. And so, uh, as I was growing up, there were never any uh, uh, paved roads. There were a few here and there. Most of them were gravel and uh, and were oiled at a, on a regular basis, and sidewalks were sporadic. So, so there was always this pall of of failure that uh, hung over the city, in addition to to the other institutions that I've already uh, described. I was fascinated by your description of your uncle Bill uh, in the book. Uh, Bill, a dedicated outdoorsman, he'd spent considerable time in northern Saskatchewan and when he was in PA he used to write letters into the Prince Albert Daily Herald the main newspaper pushing back as you put it on the racist letters to the editor which would periodically crop up he even suggested at one point in his published letters that the uh, that the name Prince Albert should be replaced by an indigenous name and that name should be chosen by its indigenous residents. Uh, do you remember the reaction to his letters, like the letter suggesting the name change? My dear Uncle Bill, he was he was John's kid brother from from a family of of fourteen children, including ten boys. Uh, Bill was the grandfather I couldn't have in John, and. Uh, and he would take me uh, up north, and we would canoe. He taught me how he taught me everything I know today about woodcraft, bushcraft, and fishing and canoeing. And yeah, he would write he would write these letters into the Herald on a regular basis. Uh, he would also write op-ed pieces, including a, an extended essay called the The River, which was a history of the North Saskatchewan River. And uh, the pushback he would get. He, <laughs> I think he, in part he did it because he knew he would get pushback and he wanted that. He, he wanted to create debate and discussion. It was an ideal for him to, to, uh, to enter into contentious issues that were of uh, huge importance historically, like racism and, and colonialism. And, uh, and he sometimes one time got me in trouble with uh, one of my high school teachers because he had written a letter suggesting that uh, the planned uh, ski hill uh, for Little Red River Park north of Prince Albert shouldn't be built because there were uh, 
Lakota Sioux people who were who were buried there, and and he helped scuttle that that ski development. And and my uh, my English teacher in high school was quite upset about it, and uh, and he he you know he made a point of making me aware that that my last name and Bill Boshwin's last name were were connected. So. So yeah, Uncle Bill was very uh, vocal, and uh, and he 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 and my father and my mother brought me into uh, you know a kind of political and historical awareness that uh, that I'm very grateful for. Well, I know you haven't been in PA recently, but based upon your account and uh, your reflection on PA, looking forward, what kind of community would you like to see? PA evolve into? There are two things that come to mind for me. First, that Indigenous and Métis people, as I'm sure they are doing, should be uh, in leadership and uh, vanguard positions to determine um, the identity and the course of, of Prince Albert, including what it, a possible name change. You know things like street names. I know that there's a street named after Gray Owl, and uh, and I'm and I'm sure that uh, First Nations people have uh, have some thoughts about that because Gray Owl was an Englishman posing as a First Nations wise man, and uh, you know I just think that that those uh, uh, kinds of things, uh, the names of places, enter into our current cultural discussion about about cultural monuments and uh, and what they mean and uh, whether sometimes they shouldn't be changed. So basically, I hope that 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 Prince Albert uh, will will take ownership of its past. I think that that's the only way forward for for all of us is to own the past. Uh, and and that's the way uh, I think to um, to meet truth and reconciliation in the 21st century. Rob, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. This is uh, it's a fascinating book, uh, the way in which it's structured, the way in which you weave the past into the more uh, to the present, uh, as well as your own personal history is fascinating. So thank you very much. Thanks. It was great to be here today, Greg. My guest today was Robert Boschman. He is the author of White Coal City, a memoir of place and family, published by the University of Regina Press in 2021. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The very best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on March 26, 2021. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.